0: Hi, I'm Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. One of the main drivers of inflation today is the skyrocketing cost of housing across the United States. As we noted in our editorial last month, the spike has been caused by a number of factors, including growing income inequality, stringent single-family zoning policies in towns and cities, and other barriers to neighborhood densification erected by so-called NIMBY homeowners. On this episode, Associate Editor Griffin Olenek speaks with Max Holleran, a sociologist at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and author of the new book, Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing. It's a study of the YIMBY movement, composed mostly of young housing activists, whose rapid rise has begun shaping policy and helped spark new conversations about the future of urban life in America. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Griffin. It's good to see you. Hey, Dominic. So you got the chance to speak with Max Holler. And why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So
1: I was excited to talk to Max, not just because I live here in New York City on the front lines of the affordable housing crisis, but also because he studies a set of issues that I've been interested in for the past four or five years. Things like gentrification, land use, and zoning policy, and how all of those things interact with our cultural imagination and varying expectations about what we think city life should be. The YIMBY movement, Max says, is really animated by one single idea, build more of everything. And the expectation is that increasing the housing supply will alleviate pressure on affordable housing. It's actually pretty similar to the argument that we made in our editorial last month. But Max says that it's actually a lot more complicated than that. What we lose when we focus on increasing density is the question of who gets to live in new construction. So, the problem is that Yimbyism has a primarily white middle class constituency. And that risks crowding out the voice of the people who are at the greatest risk of housing insecurity, who tend to be low income people of color. Those are the same people who never left cities to begin with.
0: Yeah, a-,
1: a pressing set of issues and a really good topic to talk
0: about. Thank you, Griffin. No
1: problem. Max Hellerin, thanks so much for being on the Commonwealth podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, before we get into the origins of how Yimbyism got started, I want to take a moment to talk about how the views of Americans surrounding cities have changed. And you detail that history quite nicely in in the introduction to your book. Could you give us a brief summary about how that happened? How have Americans' views on cities and the desirability of living in them changed
2: over the past hundred years or so? Americans famously don't like cities. You hear about this arch rivalry between Hamilton, the lover of the central bank, the guy who moved to New York and loves it. And Jefferson, the country squire who believed that we could have a more organic form of democracy. if We all lived in small towns, preferably farming communities. And ever since then, Americans have been really suspicious of cities. Cities are a force for change. They're a place of immigration and ethnic and racial difference. They're a place of new ideas. And some of those ideas seem rather dangerous. So there's that kind of Cultural baggage we have as a settler colonial country that has a lot of room and people can go and find themselves. They can go west, as the maxim has it. And then there's also the real structural economic things, which is that we funded a tremendous highway system through federal money in the post war era. We helped to subsidize new housing at the edges of cities and what would become the kind of first generation. Of American suburbs in the 1960s. And um, those things have made the US a really suburban country with really dispersed cities. In some ways, you know, what we have west of the Mississippi, there's a big debate whether that's really a city at all. It's more of a metropolitan region because a lot of places don't really have centers. They have some centers, some strip malls, some shopping centers, um, but they're very dispersed. And so for a long time, that was really the ideal, which is that you have family, you have no class job, you buy a house away from the city, and that is a place that's safe. You can raise your children there. You can kind of emphasize the nuclear family. So it's like you, the kind of two kids and husband and wife. And you can also use that house as a kind of primary asset, which gives your family equity. And that started changing With some critiques of suburbanization that emerged in the 1970s, suburbs were seen as culturally deadening, as places that were not just boring and soulless, but also sometimes creepy and unwelcoming, places that also advertised a sense of community, but didn't actually deliver on that because neighbors didn't know one another, and the kind of neighborliness that you'd see in a more tightly, more compact neighborhood just wasn't there. And also for environmental reasons, which is that all these new suburbs, starting with the first generation and then all the new iterations afterward, were just devouring lands near cities, forcing municipalities to build highways and put services out very far from the city center, and also forcing people to drive huge distances. And so... All those critiques really added up to a general dissatisfaction with suburbia that then translated into the kind of I, the kind of resettling of cities. Um, mm. And when, when did this begin? Yeah, so this is 1970s, 1980s, yeah. the ideas, but really an acceleration, 1990s. Obviously, there is a lot of pioneer metaphors about coming back to the city. The cities were not empty. They always had people. They had <laughs> less people, but they had right. more people. They had people of color. They had, you know, they had residents. They just weren't people who were specifically choosing to live there. And the services that those people were given were horrendous. The streets were in a terrible state of disrepair. Schools and other infrastructure were quite bad. So you see people sort of falling in love with cities again, 1990s and engaging in this process that we know today as gentrification. And that's a very uniquely American thing because most cities in and other places in the world never lost their wealthy residents. Wealthy people in general stayed near the center of the city. Mm-hmm. Gentrification is a
1: word that we hear a lot, maybe almost daily. How would you define it as a sociologist? And how does that compare to the kind of popular understanding of what gentrification is?
2: So gentrification, you know, comes from like the gentry and the, the gentry moving back in. There's an economic reality to it, which is that people are searching for cheaper houses um, at the individual level, and real estate developers are searching for housing that they can then flip for more money in places that have significant devaluation, but potentially could be revalued for a much higher amount of money. There's also kind of cultural gentrification, which is middle class people, most often white people moving into places that are immigrant neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are Latino, Black, but also Polish, Korean. There's a lot of different examples here. And finding a level of authenticity in those places, finding, really liking the fact that they're denser, that they feel urban, and sometimes even celebrating the kind of grittiness, the kind of, the sense that they're real places that have real problems. However, what happens is when people move to these neighborhoods, mostly for cheaper rent. At the beginning, there are people who are middle class, oftentimes it's artists or students or young people looking for cheap rent. Then they quickly change the neighborhood and the neighborhood increases in prestige and increases in value, which, you know, kicking out the original residents, just like displacing them. And then also in a sort of tremendous irony, displacing the first and sometimes second waves of gentrifiers who popularized these places in the first place. So I want to turn to the economic and social
1: crisis at the heart of your book. That is inequality precipitated and perpetuated by the lack of affordable housing, not just in coastal cities in the U.S., but seemingly all across the country. Rents and home prices have risen to all-time highs. And so I want to ask you broadly, what are some of the chief causes of this crisis? And how do YIMBY groups emerge
2: as a sort of response? So you're right. This is not just a problem of big coastal cities, but actually rents and home prices have gone up everywhere. Even before the pandemic, you saw an enormous surge in prices. There's a couple big reasons this is happening. The first one is general economic inequality, which is that real wages have not increased since the 1970s. That most people are living with far fewer financial assets than they would have 30 years ago, particularly younger people. And there's been a slow and steady erosion of middle class. So that's the kind of macroeconomic problem. On the level of space and cities, what's happening is that we have cities that have not built very much. They have not built uh, many new houses, not just public housing, not just affordable housing, but housing in general particularly what they haven't built, is apartments. So you see a lot of cities that should have grown much more, and they have not. Sometimes that's an issue of them passing off their growth onto their nearby suburbs because they don't want to be bothered with it. But sometimes it's just a kind of refusal to grow altogether. That's something you see most famously in San Francisco, where the Yimby's are threatened. San Francisco should be a much larger city. And the kind of Bay Area has taken on a lot of that burden, which means that people are ta- tasked with tremendous commutes. They also oftentimes are housing insecure. So they're couch surfing or they're have a stable place to, to stay. And what the EMB say is that we need to build more housing to solve affordability. So they have a really simple argument, which is that, this is completely a supply problem. We need to build more in every category of housing. It's not just about building public housing. It's not just about building kind of nonprofit housing, but we need to let developers build for-profit housing, which is not a popular standpoint in some ways because developers are not popular people in most circles. But they say, look, we need to fix the supply problem however we can, including with for-profit developers they really spread that message. And one way they did it was by saying, uh, we have a lot of regional inequality in the United States and people need to be able to move to cities where they can get a good job and get a good income. Increasingly, that is less available in some cities and more available in others. So it's not just that someone wants to move to Seattle because they like the vibe there. It's because that job is going to make a hell of a lot more money um, than a job in a comparable sort of like a a Nevada city or in somewhere like Albuquerque. That kind of economic inequality is at the heart of their argument and really also gestures towards some of these huge regional divides that we've seen in terms of income in the past 20 years. So are they right, the Yimbis, that simply building
1: more housing will increase affordability in American cities? What are some of the objections
2: to that argument? Yes and no. So building more housing is not going to dramatically increase gentrification in some neighborhoods. Building more housing is in some ways a pressure valve that will help address the issue of gentrification and of people getting priced out of their neighborhoods. At the same time, building market rate housing is not going to solve Some of the major problems because a lot of people cannot afford the market as it is. So there has to be some form of subsidy, whether from a nonprofit or from the government, something that looks like Section 8, where you give a voucher, or something that involves a mandatory affordability in the zoning process, where you have to earmark 15% of the new units in a building as affordable, permanently affordable. But no building alone will not solve the problem, particularly for people who are in danger of being homeless or people at the really bottom of the income ladder. It's even what we have now as affordable housing programs sometimes don't address those people because it's affordability in New York, for instance. It's like you can make $100,000, I think is for a family. So it's not people scratch their heads and say, wow, that doesn't sound terribly affordable to me. It sounds like we're building middle-class housing or working-class housing. The people who are poor are usually excluded from some of those programs as well. The only programs that address them and is public housing. And public housing has been divested of income, starved of income for generations, basically. Mm-hmm. So how do you explain the success of the YIMBY movement? What do you think is the source of its appeal It's really simple. It's a really simple message. It has a base of people who are more affluent than most previous housing movements. So it's a lot more middle-class people who are also struggling to pay the bills and they see themselves in this movement to say, look, we know that the problem is worse for people who have low incomes, but it's also addressing, you know, us, the middle class. And you can argue about whether that's selfish or not, whether that's, you know, I thought whether people should care about the middle class when there's people who are in really economically precarious positions. It's really good at translating uh, wonky urban planning knowledge to a big audience. So it's huge on Twitter. It's huge on Instagram. It loves memes. It loves snappy sayings. It has like a lot of different phrases that they use, like build more of everything as one, which is the idea that you should build for-profit housing and non-profit housing and public housing and uh, accessory dwelling units in people's backyards above their garages and housing behind places of worship and places of faith and you should build a community land trust. So they sort of a, a, a really strong presence online, which is also controversial because they're not shy about saying what they want and they're not shy about calling out people who don't want more housing. So, of course, the term that they're building off of, yes, in my backyard, is a reaction to not in my backyard. So not in my backyard, nimbyism, is this incredibly malign thing that people have been talking about in the U.S. for at least two or three generations. And so they see those people as selfish. They see them as people who won't make any kind of compromises for their community And they've been really successful in using that against their critics and going to zoning board meetings and saying, look, we have to have this building built. It's going to give us new housing. We don't care if it increases traffic. We don't care if it casts a shadow over your backyard. So they have that really powerful um, foil to that, which is they have this kind of foil of of NIMBYism. Even though I think most of us are NIMBYs, in the sense that we want to protect our homes, if you own a place that you want to, that's your main source of value, probably. And you probably want to protect it against threats to that value. But most people would say, I'm a sensible homeowner. I don't want to, I'm not going to say no to the preschool. I'm not going to say no to something that's socially purposeful. But at the same time, most people in the end usually do. They say no to the hospital. They say no to the assisted living facility. They say no to the methadone clinic. So nimbyism is both absolutely predictable and also understandable, but it's hard to build urban planning policy with rampant nimbyism. And they would say that their movement is successful because people were so tired of individual exceptions being made for neighborhoods and having to go through massive amounts of red tape to build anything because so many neighbors groups protested.
0: We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with Max Holleran in a minute. Catholic priests improve the quality of life for many in their community. But some may wonder, is there something more? As a chaplain in the U.S. Army Chaplaincy Program, you'll impact the lives of our soldiers as well as practice faith leadership around the world. Doing work that changes lives, including your own. That's the Army difference. Learn more at goarmy.com slash chaplain.
1: There's a sort of generational framing that NIMBY activists use. Is It's sort of the younger millennial cash poor, assetless renters against the kind of well-off protected homeowners, the NIMBY home- homeowners who have already locked in. Could you talk about that story that Yimbis tell and, and maybe point to some of the economic
2: or class realities that it obscures? Yeah, so Yimbis, wherever their groups are, they oftentimes divide themselves into renters versus homeowners, but they specifically also divide themselves into younger people versus older people. And part of that is because it was just a lot easier to buy a home if you were buying a home 30 years ago because there was, it was much cheaper and it was a much more kind of middle-class thing to do. Buying a home now seems like a real luxury, including for people who are on pretty good incomes. It's very hard to afford an apartment, a townhouse, and particularly a house. And so that story that they tell about it being a generational issue and the fact that older people just can't understand it because it was so easy for them to buy a home is a fairly powerful one because it universalizes the concept they're dealing with. to Everyone in the United States who's under 40 or under 45, and that's a big group of people. And it also touches on a lot of other issues. So it, there's a sense within the MB movement, which is identifying with the millennial cohort and, and it's the millennial cohort was really adversely affected by the 2008 financial crisis, depleting their savings, and also permanently affecting their lifelong wage earnings because of unemployment or because of lack of promotion. And the older people just can't understand that. There's also a kind of idea within this movement that they're living in a kind of gerontocracy and housing policy is just one part of that. So they would say, look, everything is controlled by older people who have nice homes, and they have much more money than us. And they're, you look at the heads of government and they're all like in their late 70s. And we as a generation, even though we're approaching middle age or are middle aged, have not gotten our fair share of political voice. And it's even worse when you look at the Zoomer generation of people who are under 30. And last, they would say that things have really changed from this generation of people who were born in the 50s, 60s, early 60s, where they sort of grew up with suburbia and they were fine with it. And they would say, we live in a much more urban and diverse generation. So we're not afraid of cities. We didn't come to age in this era of white flight and suburbanization. And so they have this kind of cultural value of cities that's good to rub shoulders of people. It's good to live in a dense place, to embrace the Jane Jacobs dream of living in this kind of like sidewalk ballet of cities where you get to see a lot of things going on in your neighborhood and you can sit on your stoop and talk to your neighbors. And it's a bit of an idealization of what city life is like, but it's also the sense that things are changing quickly in the U.S. and that if we could live a bit closer together, perhaps we could understand each other better and make decisions that are less polarized.
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the most fascinating aspects of your book is the way that you give micro case studies of different cities in the U.S. as well as abroad. One of the most interesting to me was your chapter about Boulder, Colorado, which I think a lot of people associate with this image of a freewheeling outdoor place known for its environmentalism. But you explained that actually it was environmentalism that prevented growth and that really made Boulder one of the most unaffordable unequal places in America. Could you talk about how that developed? What was the history of Boulder and how have densification activists tried to combat what's going on there now?
2: Yeah, so Boulder has a lot of fame in the United States. Some people remember it as this kind of hippie haven. There's a saying there, it's like a town pushed between the mountains and reality. And it's quite famous for attracting people like Alan Ginsberg, who started a Buddhist university there, and having this, as you said, freewheeling spirit. The thing about Boulder is that they are an absolute leader when it comes to environmental policy. They bought a greenbelt around the city in the late 1960s using public tax dollars to secure a bunch of municipally managed land. And that's what makes up this incredible infrastructure of trails, this kind of beautiful green necklace, this emerald necklace around the city that is trails and hiking paths, biking paths, and made it really rightfully famous in the United States as an outdoor enthusiast paradise. The issue is they also never changed zoning rules within the city to accommodate more apartment buildings. They are now slowly changing to build new apartment buildings and to increase the population. But for a long time, they were very influenced by an idea of almost no population growth. So a lot of the former city council members there were very adamant that the population of Boulder should not grow by more than 1% per year, which allowed it to be a city of about 100,000 people for decades and decades. What happened there is that they slowly started using people with smaller incomes and then eventually middle-class people who would move to the satellite cities around Boulder and commute in, which if you think about the Greenbelt as a way to reduce suburban sprawl, makes it a complete failure. And then what's happened now is it's become a real paradise, a lifestyle paradise, and it's lost its middle class as well. So it's famously the home to a large university. However, many college professors now cannot afford to live in the city. And many other people who have fairly high incomes have been kind of forced out of the city to make this luxury resort city. And so on one hand, Boulder has always had a very fraught relationship to seeing themselves as a city. They want to see themselves as a college town, despite having a lot of important industries and over 100,000 people. But I think it's also a good metaphor for a lot of other places they are refusing to grow and to build new housing, particularly multifamily units, which is the idea that everyone can just go somewhere else. It's like, go to the suburbs, go to the nearby city, don't bother us, we're fine here, and we got in first. And I think that the Umbies rightfully see that as something that is quite perverse in the sense that it does not acknowledge economic inequality. It also doesn't acknowledge the fact that people want to be mobile. People want to be able to go to cities where there are opportunities and to be able to live somewhere there. So places like Boulder are at risk of having students not come there to study at the University of Colorado because it's just too expensive. And like so many places, there's a kind of dating effect where some of these cities are feeling more like walled medieval towns that are... Excluding all the people who aren't part of the original populace. And, and there's a lot of places that people just can't get into. When you get this kind of absolute polarization of cities that you see in the United States now, with some really wealthy cities and then you have the other kind of service city next door, where the people who work in the kitchens, the nurses, the people who fulfill priority jobs that are part of essential workers, as we called them during the pandemic. that is not a good ceiling to not be able to live in the place that you work and to be banished somewhere else. Even if the other place is a nice place, people want to feel like they're part of the community. They don't want to work in one city and then live in another city and have this kind of bifurcated identity of who they are. As a former
1: medievalist, I used to study the Italian Middle Ages. It really is exactly what happened in Tuscany. We had the Florentine city-state which was surrounded by walls, controlling other satellite cities that were meant to serve it in
2: diverse kinds of industries. And acidity. people who were desperate to get into them for that for their own safety and were excluded. I remember, you know, I think it was in Buenos Aires, I was saying like, suburbios or something. And they're like, oh well, yeah, it's a word, but don't say it because it means like the problematic, like peripheral places.
1: Well, exactly.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. Hence the current Pope's
1: emphasis on the Periferia is like the place you should
2: pay attention to, which is also a great metaphor, too, because I think Francis understands that in the sense of the periferia of the world and also of um, so the global periphery, the global south and the cities. And it makes so much sense in Italian cities or French cities where there's like the bon dieu I think that's a really good metaphor, actually. I really like I think that's a very clever way to put it.
1: So I want to shift our attention to another issue away from environmentalism and towards the issue of race, which is something that you really dig into in your chapter on Austin, Texas, which is one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. Could you talk a bit about how development has proceeded in the past 10 or 20 years in Austin and the kind of effect that's had on lower income neighborhoods, especially in East
2: Austin? So Austin has been for a long time one of those cities that's quite large. It has the state capitol, but it's had a of vibe of this cool slacker city that has been more famous for live music and for a countercultural scene than for being a place in Texas that has a large economy. That really changed about 20 years ago. Austin obviously has one of the country's top research universities that has always been incredibly productive in terms of making intellectual property and tying in some academic discoveries to business. But more and more, Austin became a place that was a destination not just for people who liked going out on Sixth Street and going to the cool live music bars, but for large companies and also for startups. So it's a huge tech center now. Part of that is the kind of economic growth of Texas in general. Texas has been really successful. In attracting people, and we can argue about whether that's tax incentives or weather or a friendly business environment. But Austin has been, it was the fastest growing city for about 10 years. And it also lost a lot of its population, particularly its African American population decreased dramatically, along with other gentrifying and popular cities. Seattle is the other one that's really notable. And Austin has become a much more expensive place to live and that means particularly that people have been moving to East Austin which is a was a black and Latino neighborhood separated by the highway which also it's a kind of urban planning artifact of residential segregation and what's happened in Austin is that there has been a push to grow more and to build new houses Particularly also to build multifamily accommodation because so much of Austin is dominated by the kind of typical bungalow house. There's been a need to build multiple buildings on the same lot. So, rezoning parts of Austin is a major battle, as it is in many American cities where the majority of neighborhoods are zoned only for single-family homes. And sometimes there's also kind of minimum requirements, minimum lot requirements. That means you need to build a pretty large house. In general, places like Austin really show how it's very hard to build even townhouses in the United States. You need to get entire neighborhood rezoned or you need to get zoning approval on that particular plot of land. And then even when you build apartments, You need to sometimes have minimum parking. Sometimes it's not one space, but two spaces. So if you want to build a city that's a bit more vertical and that's walkable um, and has people co-located next to their jobs, next to their shopping, it's just really hard to do that if you're making a place that's dominated by cars and that has single family homes. It just, you know, you don't get the density that that gives that kind of that sweet point. Where you get enough shops that are walkable, where you get places that people can bicycle to. Throughout your book,
1: you're being very objective. You're a sociologist and you're performing ethnographic analysis, you're conducting interviews, but you do seem to evince, especially towards the end, a bit more personal views about how you think development should happen responsibly. Would you be able to talk a bit about that? What are some other policy alternatives besides just building market rate housing but that you might like to see in American
2: cities and even in cities abroad? So I think that one big issue is that we asked urban planners, and architects to solve a lot of problems for us. And one of the major problems is poverty. And it's the lack of fair wages. We're not going to solve this problem unless we start paying people Middle class wages, people who are paid by the hour and haven't seen the minimum wage go up. Who still have an eight, nine dollar minimum wage, it's going to be really hard for them to afford any kind of housing. I think that there needs to be more public housing. There needs to be public housing that's reinvested in, and that has reinvestment that's meaningful and that also allows it to be durable housing that can withstand things like national n- natural disasters or things like heat waves and flooding. I think that's really important. I think we can also help to support more cooperative and grassroots endeavors like community land trusts where people collectively buy land and then they use that land for housing, setting up nonprofit groups. I don't think that it's crazy to have nonprofit groups that are given federal subsidies to build um, nonprofit housing that's permanently affordable. And I think that can be done in a number of ways. That could be done by people who are particularly just in the business of urbanization. It could be done by other kinds of groups that are involved in social justice issues. It could be done by religious groups. I think that we need to probably stop thinking that the market can provide for everyone. That's just not going to happen anytime soon. And having a place to live really should be a universal right. And you have to do that because it's the ethical thing to do, but also because if you want to have a productive society, if you want to have people who can get to their jobs, if you want to have people who can take these essential roles and become the teachers and the healthcare workers, you need to have them have a stable place to live close to their job. So even if you are the most ethically minded person, this is part of having a functioning economy. And we've sort of forgotten that, but I think the pandemic should be a reminder. Um, to everyone, that the people who are working in essential services, who we are absolutely reliant on, the people working at supermarkets and bagging your groceries and delivering your takeout and, and taking care of you in the hospital or putting out flyers, those are sometimes the people who are really struggling the most in American cities. So finding that workforce a place to stay and a place they can feel happy about, they can feel fulfilled in their neighborhood is of the utmost importance.
1: I think that's a great place to land.
2: Thanks for
0: being on The Coming Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, it was such a pleasure. Max Holleran's new book is Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing, available now from Princeton University Press. You can also read our editorial, Making the Red, which appeared in our September issue and is still available on our website. And be on the lookout for more coverage on this topic, beginning with Eileen Markey in our November issue, who writes a big feature about housing in the Bronx. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Associate Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudwe composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please share it with friends, family, and anyone else who enjoys thoughtful, in-depth conversations like the ones we have here. I'm Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast.